Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am host of the Guidelines podcast. Uh, my co-host tonight is Dr. Brandon Lang. Uh, tonight, our topic is Congress of Neurological Surgeons, Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guidelines on the Treatment of Pediatric Hydrocephalus, uh, update of the 2014 guidelines. And we have the privilege of welcoming the uh, first author of this uh, guideline, uh, Dr. David Bauer. Uh, so to start with, I'll turn the uh, microphone, if you will, over to him. Uh, he'll give us an overview of the manuscript and should be a great learning experience tonight. So without further ado, go ahead, Dr. Bauer. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Elder. I, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk today about um, about guidelines and, and the hydrocephalus guidelines. I, um, uh, I actually really like your series of podcasts and it's nice to, to be able to talk about um, our update. So, um, and just in brief, um, this is, an update of a prior guideline that was published in uh, 2014. The way I uh, sort of frame um, guidelines um, really is based on uh, when the literature review was performed, because um, the guideline really um, you're supposed to you know have a, a rigorous methodology and. The um, literature search is really the, the key part because you're basing your recommendations off of the articles that you found. And so the first set of guidelines published in 2014 were based off of a uh, literature search that ended in 2012. And so um, it was important to do uh, an update. We try to do these about every five years. And uh, this set of guidelines had a, an, a literature search through November of 2019. And when we do an, an update, so the original guidelines had 10 chapters, and we uh, basically redid the literature search, um, the same search uh, strategy um, as we had um, done before, just updating the date. And we had a, a task force uh, that was composed of the um, a sort of a smaller group of the original authors. And we were tasked to go through this uh, literature. Uh, thankfully, it was less literature than we um, had to go through in the first um, go around. And so we uh, had uh, sort of less, less work to do. But the, the um, goal was to find articles that were new that met the inclusion criteria and then to um, grade the articles and see if they informed um, or better informed our, our recommendations. And so... I, I can uh, sort of uh, go through the different chapters um, and discuss sort of the high points of what we found. Um, but um, in brief, we, we found 41 studies that uh, met inclusion criteria that we used to um, update our recommendations. When when you do a um, an update, and when, when I've um, when I've done these um, before, the 
things that I think about are um, whether the literature um, just adds evidence, you know, to um, the uh, initial uh, guidelines. Maybe they um, increase the strength of the guidelines. If it's a higher quality evidence, maybe a prospective randomized, you know, controlled trial, or um, it's possible new literature could come out that might make us absolutely, you know, change our recommendation. And that's, I, I found is rare, but but can happen. And so um, when we were doing the the, um, the initial sort of review of the literature, we thought, should we add any additional uh, chapters, any additional PICO questions? Um, is there is there something new in hydrocephalus that that we should um, discuss? And we we realized that there there wasn't. It was basically just an update of the sort of existing PICO questions. And so we um, we didn't add in any additional chapters. But I think that's that's always important to to think about. So the um, the guidelines it's a, um, a brief basically communications published in neurosurgery um, and and it references our original 10 chapters. Chapter two, so I'll just um, start from the, uh, the, the top. Uh, that explores the management of post-hemorrhagic hydrocephalus in premature infants. So these are premature infants. Uh, they um, have germinal matrix hemorrhages. Some of them develop hydrocephalus. We um, had good recommendations in our original guidelines based on, on reasonable evidence. The uh, a new recommendation that we have, um, and this is a level three recommendation, so it's, it's based on uh, some retrospective case series, and it states that a um, sort of a, a newer technique called uh, neuroendoscopic lavage is a, a feasible and safe option for the removal of intraventricular clots, and it actually may may lower the rate of shunt placement. So again, this is a level three recommendation, um, so it's not uh, based on uh, prospective evidence, but is um, a, a new technique that uh, we felt was uh, a reasonable thing. So this is an endoscope into the ventricle and lavaging out the blood products, basically sucking out clots, and that uh, possibly could lower the rate of uh, eventual shunt placement. So I, I think that's um, an important uh, take-home message. For um, for the next part, um, part three, this is evaluates um, technical assistance for ventricular catheter placement. Um, and so this includes um, using an endoscope through the catheter, maybe stereotactic computer-assisted navigation or an ultrasound. And the uh, studies that we found uh, that were included basically backed up our initial recommendations, but the only new new studies um, was relevant to ultrasound. And this was class two data indicating that ultrasound-assisted uh, shunt catheter placement did not result in a statistically significant improvement in shunt survival. So, so this means that um, ultrasound is an option but it, it's uh, not a, uh, it hasn't been shown um, to increase um, shunt survival. Uh, however, we uh, did find evidence that ultrasound is an option. Um, and so this is always um, hard. You can imagine there can be uh, selection bias in these studies. And so the um, only recommendation we can provide is that it's an option, but it doesn't um, increase the chance of, of survival. And that, that was our criteria. So part four, uh, moving on, explores um, ventricular peritoneal shunt placement uh, versus endoscopic third ventriculostomy. So those are uh, sort of these two standard ways of treating hydrocephalus in children. And 
Uh, we found 12 new studies um, for part four after we reviewed 107 abstracts. And uh, the studies basically affirmed our previous recommendations that a, a ventricular peritoneal shunt and endoscopic third ventriculostomy, they're both options for the treatment of hydrocephalus in children. So they're, they're both efficacious. And this is um, level two evidence. So uh, for uh, part five, this reviewed shunt components um, in treating hydrocephalus in children to determine whether there was a, a superior um, shunt design. Um, and so, uh, as you know, in a, in a shunt, there's the ventricular catheter, there's a, uh, a valve, there's a distal catheter that goes somewhere, uh, there may be a sort of a tapping chamber. And so seeing if, if different configurations of um, shunt components affected um, outcomes. And there were... Um, 20 studies that were selected for full text review, um, and uh, seven were ultimately included in our recommendation, including a, uh, a large prospective um, cohort study um, by Dr. Uh, River Cambron. And uh, this determined that valve type had no impact on the um, shunt survival. So um, there were other studies that we, uh, uh, we looked at um, that we did uh, not include, or we were not able to um, include in our recommendations. And this basically was because uh, the um, outcomes variables looking at uh, these studies uh, were different than uh, what we listed in our PICO questions. And so this uh, just goes to show that um, it is very important um, the, uh, the the question that you answer or that you ask at the beginning of this uh, systematic review. And if we find that these additional variables are important, then it would be important for us in, in, a, in an update of the guidelines again in, in five years to change the PICO questions to evaluate these these additional variables. But because of that, the the only new data, the uh, Dr. Riva Cameron data showed that shunt survival basically was the same. Um, it didn't matter which valve you used. And so we cannot recommend a, a specific type of valve as being superior to another type um, in, in these guidelines. So um, moving on, um, part, part six, the um, update evaluated uh, whether preoperative antibiotics for shunt surgery in children with hydrocephalus prevented postoperative shunt infection. So um, two new studies um, were included, and there was, were basically no, no new evidence uh, to support or change the current recommendation, which was uh, for the use of preoperative antibiotics for shunt surgery. Part seven compared um, antibiotic impregnated shunt systems versus conventional non-antibiotic impregnated shunts. And uh, in our um, prior hydrocephalus guideline, uh, we were um, unable to recommend the use of antibiotic impregnated shunts at that time because there was no good data. However, we actually do have um, new high-level evidence um, that supports the use of antibiotic impregnated catheters to prevent post-operative shunt infection. This is from a, the basic study from, from England, uh, from Great Britain, uh, the uh, British study looking at uh, silver-impregnated, antibiotic-impregnated, and non-impregnated catheters, um, which showed in this uh, multi-center um, sort of class one randomized control trial that antibiotic-impregnated shunts um, did reduce the rate of post-operative shunt infection, particularly in children. 
And so our um, recommendation now for chapter seven is a high level, level one, high degree of uh, clinical certainty that these AIS or antibiotic and prenated catheters should be used to prevent postoperative shunt infection in children. Um, so that was a, that was a, a, a major change to the, the guidelines. Part eight, um, this looks at the management of cerebral spinal fluid shunt infections in children with hydrocephalus. And so we um, had two full text articles that were evaluated. However, they didn't meet um, inclusion criteria since pediatric patients represented less than 80% of the cohort. And so based on, on our uh, literature search, there was no additional literature to support any change in uh, the uh, existing guideline. Uh, for part nine, uh, chapter nine, um, this evaluated the ventricular catheter entry point on uh, shunt survival. So this is basically evaluating uh, whether uh, left or right or a sort of a, a frontal approach or a, a parietal approach might improve the uh, longevity of uh, shunt placement. And so our new literature um, review yielded uh, 76 abstracts. Um, six were selected for full text review. And there um, really um, uh, was, was uh, some retrospective studies, class three evidence through secondary analysis that um, looked at whether um, the entry point mattered. But there's no randomization or control. And uh, so there was no new evidence that we could find that would substantially change the original recommendation that either a, a frontal or a, um, a parietal occipital entry point were reasonable options for the treatment of pediatric hydrocephalus, but one um, entry point was not superior to, um, to another. And then finally, um, part, part 10, chapter 10 of the guideline update evaluated the uh, predictive value of post-treatment ventricular size in determining the effectiveness of uh, surgical intervention. And so looking at mostly ETV, and uh, the, the question was, how do, you, how do you tell if an ETV is working? Should the ventricles come down in size? And so uh, we reviewed 70 abstracts, had six studies that met um, inclusion criteria with full text uh, review. But of those, three were excluded. So we had we had three studies that um, informed our, our new recommendation, and um, and for, these were uh, class three data. And uh, uh, one study looked at uh, ventricular volume, um, and uh, another study uh, looked at the measurements of the third ventricle, and uh, a uh, another study looked at ventricular size, and so in different ways and. They were all class three data, and uh, they had a, a small uh, number of patients um, in each cohort. So because of that, it, our original recommendation wasn't substantially changed, um, that um, we really don't have a validated, uh, rigorously studied way of, of telling whether a, uh, um, an ETV is, is working or not. Um, and so, again, um, class three data that potentially a change in the ventricular size, smaller ventricles uh, may uh, provide evidence, but we don't have um, higher quality data. And so 
that's uh, that's really the um, the the update and the guideline. The um, the ten chapters uh, we again have a um, an easy to read uh, sort of high high level overview that was published in neurosurgery in um, October of, of twenty twenty. And uh, to me, the the two main uh, parts that are take home points uh, one is the use of endoscopic lavage and sort of clot evacuation in little babies, premature babies with um, germinal matrix hemorrhage and hydrocephalus, and that um, this treatment uh, may uh, potentially decrease the risk for later shunt placement. And the um, other major change um, is the uh, high level of evidence from the basic study from uh, Great Britain showing that use of antibiotic impregnated catheter does decrease the uh, chance of postoperative shunt infection. Um, and so antibiotic impregnated catheters were recommended to be used to prevent uh, postoperative shunt infection. That was a phenomenal summary and um, a lot of information there. It must, must have been a tremendous amount of work. I, if it's okay, I'll, I'll ask a few questions. And I think Dr. Lang will probably ask a few questions here in just a, a moment. One of the things I want to say, uh, after having done this podcast for a while, it's very uncommon to see the emergence of level one evidence. So, I, so I'm, I'm uh, happy to see that show up. Um, why do you think that is in the case of this specific topic? Why, why wouldn't we see more level one evidence, especially for you know things that that involve uh, devices where you could, in theory, use one or another? Why, why couldn't there be prospective studies that provide level one evidence? So, um, so, so great, great question. Um, obviously, this is what we um, all, all um, you know, want want to achieve is, is is high quality evidence. I think. Also, I, I I think that in the past, people, surgeons, you know, uh, or uh, neurosurgeons in general, did care so much about the evidence. And I think um, with the um, sort of quality and and guidelines, I think. There's there's more emphasis on creating good evidence. I think evidence, uh, high quality level one evidence, uh, randomized prospective trials, they're they're hard to do. I mean, they they really, if 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 anyone has sort of considered uh, sort of the the effort and the cost, it is um, tremendous. Uh, the money for uh, for research coordinators to uh, make sure that patients get the uh, the treatment that they're they're randomized for to. Uh, make sure everyone gets follow up at the, at the correct time, and so I, I think for shunts, I, I think that they're a pretty common procedure. You know, many procedures in neurosurgery are are less common. Um, I think it's there's economics behind it as well, and and uh, you know there's a there's a higher cost for these antibiotic impregnated catheters, but there's also a cost for um, and, and to the patient um, and to society for for an infection, and so. I, I think that's probably why um, hydrocephalus and 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 um, and, and uh, you know shunts were, were chosen in England. You know they have a um, uh, sort of a cost effectiveness sort of you know nationalized healthcare plan, and, and and this was funded by the British government. And so I think for them um, this probably uh, helped to save uh, the British government money uh, by if if they can. Um, uh, get uh, everyone in Great Britain to use antibiotic impregnated catheters and lower the shunt um, infection rate. And so then you hopefully wipe off, you know, the cost of taking care of all those infected shunts. So that's, that's, my, that's my thought. It's, uh, but it's, I'm, I'm so happy that they did it. Yeah. Well, one, th one thing you mentioned a little bit of, in terms of, um, you know, looking at 
postoperative ventricular size to try to gauge if uh, the shunting uh, technique is working. But it, were any parts of your work uh, looking at, you know, kind of the longer term management, you know, how, what should neurosurgeons, do you shunted somebody? I mean, do you see them back in a month, three months? Do you do imaging? Do you not do imaging? Does, does do any of those post-operative monitoring measures work? I mean, how, how do you, how do you see that in terms of what you, what your uh, group discovered? So, um, that that is that is a great question. So um, we did not um, use uh, we did not have PICO questions basically to to um, uh, look at what uh, shunt follow up should be. Um, so I, and and I, I uh, suspect there um, is not really a great body of literature looking at what's the um, sort of the safe um, schedule for uh, serial imaging, what type of imaging to get uh, for follow-up, MRI, CT, ultrasound, no imaging. Um, it, it, we, we did not study that. I, I think um, that is a, um, a hard part about guidelines. I know that often guidelines do not discuss what type of follow-up a patient might need and and I suspect as a as a clinician we can uh, look at the guidelines and make our own schedule um, based on you know the the chance that someone's not going to do well after a surgery and and hopefully see them or image them prior to that happening um, but um, yeah I, I don't have any um, data driven recommendations uh, for that I think uh, again if we if we try to add them to a an upcoming guideline or our next um, iteration or update, I, I think we wouldn't be able to find data to support that. And I think it would need to be sort of a modified Delphi sort of um, uh, like a, an alternative approach, like a practice parameter. Right. Dr. Lang, did you want to uh, ask a question? Uh, yes. Um, so my question is really about the uh, neuroendoscopy for ventricular lavage. Uh, what is your perspective on this novel technique? Do you think it's something that's going to be more common in the future? Um, have you seen any perspective, any prospective trials using this technique? Um, great question. So I, I've I've just seen these uh, retrospective sort of cohort studies um, just at a, at a couple centers. I, I I think it could potentially be a um, a, a very um, a good technique, and uh, my hope is that someone is currently prospectively studying, you know, a uh, the uh, lavage uh, versus. Uh, the other um, types of, of treatment for um, uh, premium IVH, one is a, a tapping chamber and the other is the ventriculo subgaleal shunt. So um, people have studied the tapping chamber versus the subgaleal shunt and um, the outcomes have been um, pretty similar, but no one has really compared them to um, to this lavage technique. I think um, as more pediatric neurosurgeons are becoming facile um, with um, neuroendoscopy, um, especially the smaller flexible endoscope for um, ETVs and, and young children. I think um, technically this is a feasible, you know, technique that most people would feel comfortable with. So I think there's there's more to come, but it's um, it's sort of exciting preliminary data. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask uh, one more question, uh, and that question is, Dr. Bauer, if you could pick one of these chapters, and and design a prospective study, which one do you think is the most important for your field to have answered uh, in a prospective fashion? 
Oh, Dr. Elder, this is a hard question. <laughs> I'd love to have uh, great data on all of them. Um, I would say um, the, uh, you know, maybe maybe valve type. Uh, so um, I, I, I've seen um, anecdotal studies um, looking at uh, programmable valves and with uh, sort of uh, aggressive adjustments of these valves. And they have, they have new iterations of these uh, shunts and they have um, anti-siphon devices and some of them are programmable. And so you know, a lot of new technology. And, and I think um, studying that in a, in a rigorous way, but uh, to your point of, of follow-up, the um, anecdotal evidence I've seen for programmable shunts um, basically preventing slit ventricle syndrome have been in the hands of neurosurgeons who are adjusting them quite frequently. Um, and if you can't capture that granularity of data in a study, then you may not find a, a difference in outcomes. Um, and so um, I think it would be very expensive and very difficult. But I think looking at um, sort of the new new wave of uh, shunt valves and prospectively uh, randomizing um, and and studying patients would would um, be uh, very uh, helpful to our our field. But but again, I think that the feasibility behind that um, it just it seems uh, like a gargantuan task. Well, thank you very much. Um, that was uh, that was phenomenal. Uh, I want to thank our uh, guest, Dr. Bauer, for joining us today. I also want to extend a uh, Thank you to uh, his team, uh, who together have put uh, countless hours into bringing this guideline project to fruition. Uh, thank you also to Dr. Lang, our resident guest, for uh, joining us. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And with that, I'll bid everyone a good night.